Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, thanks, Chris. Um, so, I'm not superstitious, uh, but maybe a little stitious. But I, uh, so the last time I spoke here at Church in the Valley, uh, the night before someone else got engaged. So the way I figure it, um, if any of you girls like want to get a little foresight as to when they might pop the question, just ask when I'm speaking next at Church in the Valley, and um, you know you might get a little insight to that. So. Uh, this morning, we're talking about um, a topic that I've entitled A Tale of Two Kings, Lessons in Humility. And uh, I don't know about you, if you guys ever have a thought or you're working on something throughout the week, sometimes certain songs come to mind. Uh, for me, um, this isn't a song I typically think of, but for some reason, it's been in my head all week. Uh, it's a song we've sung at Challenge uh, before at USC and as well as here at Church in the Valley. It's called Bigger Than I Thought. And I've literally listened to that song probably like 50 times this week, uh, just because like, well, it's in my head, I might as well actually listen to the song. Uh, <clears throat> so anyway, I, I wanted to share just, uh, this is kind of just a side note, but a few, a few of the lyrics from that song that have been sticking in my head as I've been thinking about this topic, um, the, the writer of the song at one point says, so we throw all my, he goes, I throw all my cares before you, my doubts and fears don't scare you, you're bigger than I thought you were. And he goes on and repeats that some. And then he says, I stop all negotiations with the God of all creation. You're bigger than I thought you were. And, you know, as I was singing that and just thinking about that song a lot this week, I was just like, wow, that is so true. Like when you, what a great picture of just surrender and humility. You know, when you actually begin to see God for who he is, you're like, whoa, you're bigger than I thought you were. <laughs> and and then when you begin to see God accurately, you go, what am I doing even negotiating with God? And like, God doesn't make deals, you know, and why do I even think he doesn't have my best interest at heart? You know, like he's God, he's trustworthy, he's in control. Just stop, to stop the negotiations with him and stuff. And, you know, that, that's just been something that's been interesting. I've been thinking about this week um, as I kind of been preparing for this because, you know, I really do think if we see God accurately, that's, that's probably the, our biggest problem that everything stems from. And if we do see him accurately, you know, we're going to agree with him on ourselves and everything else he has to say. So, um, so a, as we, as I get started this morning, there's a few just questions um, I wanted you guys to kind of think about kind of uh, opening up this lesson. One is, can you think of a time for yourself uh, when you've, maybe you've boasted or you've bragged about something uh, and then soon thereafter, you kind of just fell on your face, you know, and just got kind of embarrassed. Uh, maybe physically you fell on your face. I've probably done that too, but, uh, or maybe even just, you know, metaphorically, or can you think of a time when you acted like you knew more about a subject than you really did, and then something came up, whether it be, you know, a test, you know, in, in class or a situation or project at work that you had to prove, you know, that you knew what you were uh, talking about, which you actually didn't, and then you had to deliver on it and you got embarrassed. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a situation like that happen to you. Uh, or maybe have you ever had a situation where you got really angry? about a circumstance or with the person, and you just decided, you know, you were going to take control of that situation. You were going to verbally run over and do whatever you needed to do to, to make, you know, what you thought needed to happen, happen, you know, with kind of a, an ends justify the means sort of uh, mentality. Um, but after, as a result of those things, you know, kind of felt embarrassed, you know, maybe frustrated, kind of exhausted. I know I've been in all these uh, kind of situations at different points in life. And, um, and chances are you probably had situations that you think about that, that you've experienced things like this as well for yourself. Um, but 
I think a question I was, I'm wondering about is, well, why is that? Why is it that we're, we're all very unique, we all have very different backgrounds, and yet we've probably all found ourselves in situations like that at one time or another? Um, and maybe even a more important question is, how do we avoid these kind of situations in our lives so they don't keep coming up? Um, so this morning, I wanted to talk about you know, how we as individuals and as a church can really remain blessable by God. Now, that may seem kind of like an odd thought, um, you know, as, as evangelical Christians, we kind of we think, well, you know, the grace and kindness of God, that's, you know, that's free. You don't earn that. Um, and, and I would totally agree with you. I mean, I think it would not be grace if you could earn God's grace and God's kindness. You know, he gives that totally free. No question about that. However, um, I do think while we can't earn God's grace, we can oftentimes do things in our life that siphon off that grace in our life. Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever uh, had a hose, maybe you're watering plants or you're, or you're trying to wash your car and the water's flowing through and all of a sudden it gets a kink in the hose and there's no water anymore. You know, that's, that's happened to me more times than I cared uh, to have happened. So I finally bought a really thick, you know, just rubber hose that, I mean, you really have to be doing something wrong with that hose for it to get a kink in it and the water just flows. It's great because that's just so annoying for me. Um, but, you know, I think oftentimes we can do that in our own lives. Uh, we can sort of do things that siphon off the grace of God in our own lives because of different kinks that we put in our own hose that keep God, um, God's grace flowing for us. For instance, in, in Jonah 2.8, it says that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. What Jonah is saying here is he's basically saying, you know, if you hold too tightly to something uh, to give you significance or to give you safety or to give you satisfaction in life, you know, you're putting a kink in your hose and you're siphoning off the grace that God wants to put and give you in your life. That he wants to be flowing in your direction. Now, while serving, obviously, something or someone other than God can definitely put a kink in your hose, it's not the only thing that can uh, do that. Um, another one that I wanted to focus on more for this morning is found in 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6, where Peter says, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. You know, what I would submit to you this morning is, is I think that behind the scenes of all those scenarios that maybe you thought of as I was asking those questions for myself or for you guys, is the principle of this verse at play in our lives. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Um, and now every day, each one of us faces the reality of this truth. And depending on whether we're choosing humility or depending on whether we're choosing pride, this verse can be both an encouragement or it can be a warning. It can be a warning because, you know, the idea that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, that's not just kind of like God, you know, um, he, when he's opposing you, he just, he's just not thinking nice thoughts about you or he's not helping you out. Uh, the, the idea is more um, kind of picturing like if you're about to play tackle football and, you know, you, you get down into a three-point stance. I won't do that up here this morning, but uh, let's say you get down to three-point stance on the ground and you're lined up, the, the whistle's about to blow, blow for a play and you decide, you know, well, maybe I'm going to raise my head up and kind of see who's on the opposite of the line of scrimmage I'm about to go up against. And you look up and there's God, you know, like facing at you. I don't know how big he would be or what size helmet or pads, but there's God at you right there. And now who do you think is going to win in that, you know, one-on-one -on -one skirmish? Um, oftentimes, 
you know, we get ourselves in this kind of situation when we're, when we're prideful. It, and God says he opposes the proud when that happens. Um, that's not a place we want to be in individually, and it's definitely not a place we want to be in, you know, as a collective church. Um, however, this verse can also serve as an encouragement because it says that although God does oppose the proud, it says he gives grace to the humble. Now, to really fully appreciate, I think, what that means, we have to have kind of a better understanding of what, what grace is. Um, you know, grace oftentimes is defined as, as unmerited favor with God, you know, usually connected to, you know, the forgiveness of our sins uh, and salvation. And that's true. That's absolutely true. But, um, but I, I would suggest, and I think what is also true, is that grace is much more than just that. Um, I think a working definition you can go off of right here, you know, I think grace is God working in your life to accomplish what you could not accomplish on your own. Grace is God working your life to accomplish what you could not accomplish on your own. Now, that, that includes salvation. Um, that includes the forgiveness of our sins. I mean, the reason that we need grace to be saved is because we can't accomplish that on our own. But grace is needed for much more than just the forgiveness of our sins. On the other side of being forgiven, on the other side of receiving salvation, we are learning every day, as we talked about before, to live our lives in the kingdom of God um, as Jesus would want us to. And that requires a lot of grace. Um, God working your life to accomplish what you could not do on your own. So the fact that God opposed the proud but gives grace to the humble, that really that has huge implications for our lives um, as individuals and, and as a church. And as you all know, pride is not something that you just kind of make a one-time decision on and you're done with it. Like, oh, pride, yeah, I dealt with that last week. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm on to bigger and better things, you know. But pride is something that you kind of continually have to manage on a day-by-day basis, sometimes even an hour-by-hour basis if we're going to experience the grace of God. Now, because it's a regular choice you have to make, you know, day-by-day and hour-by-hour, there's another aspect of this truth we have to be aware of. For those of you who have been, you know, on a good track record of really walking humbly before God, watch out. Because if you aren't careful, you'll begin to put your trust in your track record rather than in God, and you'll find yourself allowing pride to begin to easily creep back into your life, and you'll start to see yourself being pushed out of the circle of God's blessing and into the circle of his opposition. And at the same time, for those of you um, who feel really far from God, uh, and, and in your heart of hearts, you may not say it out loud, but you realize, I've lived a pretty prideful life, and I'm I'm walking in opposition to God, no doubt about it. You know, be encouraged. You're never too far gone that if you will simply humble yourself and ask for God's help, he'll respond with his grace. You know, God's natural bent, his natural bent and ready position is actually to shower us with his grace if we will just trust him and humble ourselves before him. So two great case studies uh, on this that we're going to look at this morning is the lives of two kings in the Old Testament, King Asa and King Ahab, uh, probably not two kings that people, you know, you might often, you know, juxtapose as you're reading the Bible, but two I want to look at this morning. Because the, the lives of these two kings, they couldn't have started off any differently than they did, and they couldn't, also couldn't have ended any differently than they did. Both of these men were, were kings in Israel after the split of Israel into the northern and southern kingdoms. Um, king Asa was actually King Solomon's great-grandson, and he was probably the godliest king that the southern kingdom of Judah had ever had since, you know, King David before the split of Israel. Now to juxtapose that, you know, in Asa's about 38th year of reign uh, in the southern kingdom, which was around 910 BC, there was a new king 
that was uh, coming into, you know, his, his kingship uh, in the northern kingdom named Ahab. Now, Ahab, on the other end, he was probably the most ungodly and wicked king that the northern kingdom of Israel had ever had. So I want to dive into a little bit of kind of what the scriptures say about their lives and look at some of the lessons that we see played out from this principle that we see in 1 Peter in their lives. Uh, so Asa's life, his reign, it begins to start off in 2 Chronicles chapter 14, and here's what it says about him. It says, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars and the high places, and he smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. He commanded Judah to see, seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and to obey his laws and commands. He removed the high places and the incense altars in every town in Judah, and the kingdom was at peace under him. He built up the fortified cities of Judah since the land was at peace. And no one was at war with him during those years, for the Lord gave him rest. So you see, he's, he's starting off his, his kingship pretty good. You know, he, uh, he's trying to do right by God, and he's really humbling himself, walking before him. And as a result, not only does he experience the grace and blessing of God, but so does his whole kingdom. Then later on in his reign, there's another people group named the Cushites, and they decide they're going to go to war against the nation of Judah. And the Bible says that the Cushites had armies that numbered in the thousands upon thousands. I mean, this was a massive army coming to fight against them. But rather than run away scared or try to kind of foolishly boast and be like, guys, we may be little, but we can do this. You know, like that's not what Asa does. He didn't try to give him the rah, rah, rah kind of thing. But instead, look at what he prays to God. He says, then Asa came to the Lord and he said, Lord, there's no one like you who can help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this vast army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let these mere mortals prevail against you. So again, Asa humbled himself before God. And look at the results of, in verse 12 and 13. It says, The Lord struck down the Cushites before Asa and Judah. And the Cushites fled, and Asa and his army pursued them as far as Gerar. And such a great number of Cushites fell that they could not recover. They were crushed before the Lord and his forces. And the men of Judah carried off a large amount of plunder. So you see time and time again in the life of King Asa that as he humbled himself before God, God gave him his grace and he experienced the grace of God, not only himself, but his whole kingdom experienced the grace of God. But as I said earlier, you know, pride is a, is a tension we have to manage. It's not something you just make a one-time decision on. It can be very easy to begin to coast on past successes rather than following God in current situations. And so before we finish up Asa's story, I want us to contrast that with the beginning of King Ahab's story. Now, King Ahab was the eighth king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he succeeded his father Omri as the king near the end of Asa's reign in the southern kingdom of Judah. And this is what it says about his life starting off in 1 Kings chapter 16. It says, In the 38th year of King Asa of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those around him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and he began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria, and Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than all of the kings of Israel before him. So you can see Ahab start his kingship about as opposite as you could possibly think of the king of Asa. I mean, he, he not only did these incredibly wrong things, but he didn't do them out of a place of ignorance. He knew 
what he was doing was wrong. He knew he shouldn't have married Jezebel, which, I mean, man, women that just ruined an entire name for everybody else. You can never name your daughter that now, you know. Um, but, you know, but he knew he shouldn't have named, you know, his daughter Je- or married Jezebel. <laughs> Definitely don't name your daughter that. But, um, I mean, not only was this woman incredibly immoral, but she was a pagan worshiper. I mean, and during her, you know, reign, which, you know, in some ways she was kind of the one reigning. But during her reign, too, I mean, she killed so many prophets of God that the rest of them had to flee for their lives and hide in caves. But Ahab knew he shouldn't have married her. He also knew that he wasn't to be worshiping these false gods like Baal and Asherah or participating in all these detestable, you know, sexual practices that went along with worshiping these different fertility gods. But instead of humbling himself before God, he chose to privately do what he wanted to do. And what were the results? Well, God sent the prophet Elijah to tell Ahab that because of his prideful disobedience, he and his entire kingdom were going to experience a severe drought in the years to come. So much so that there would not even be enough dew to collect on the ground in the morning uh, as a result of that. And since this nation was highly dependent upon, you know, agriculture and livestock, the drought caused a severe famine in the land to break out. And the Bible says in those years there was great suffering for not only the people but for the animals in the land, all because of Ahab's pride. So we see in the first part of Ahab's life <clears throat> the truth that God really does oppose the proud. And we see in the first part of Asa's life the truth that God really does give grace to the humble. But as we talked about earlier, you know, pride's a tension to manage that if not managed, you know, we can easily slip into pride if we're not careful. So for Asa, in the 36th year of his reign, he found himself facing another enemy in battle. This time it was Baasha, the king of Israel at the time. But instead of humbling himself before God, and asking God to help him and deliver him from Baasha, um, like he had done with the Cushites earlier and like he had done in other times, Asa chose to instead rely on himself and his connections. And he disobeyed God by parting with Benadad, the king of Aram, to fight against Baasha, the king of Israel. Now, Asa won the battle against Baasha, but, but because he didn't humble himself before God and chose pride, listen to what uh, God says to him in Second Chronicles 16, 7 through 10. It says, At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah and said to him, because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord, the, arm, uh, the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped your hand. Were not the Cushites and Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? And yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing. And from now on, you will be at war. Asa was angry with the seer because of this, and he was so enraged that he put him in prison. And at that same time, Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. So through Hanani, you know, <clears throat> God rebukes Asa and basically tells him, you know, hey, you won the battle, but I had so much more in, in plan for you. You know, I was intending to actually hand over the king of Aram as a result of that, but you didn't humble yourself. Instead, you chose to partner with him instead. So as a result, God, you know, said to Asa, you're going to experience war a lot going forward. Now, to make matters worse, at this point you think, man, that was a big bummer. You're like, maybe he'll humble himself, but that's not what he does. Instead, he, he gets angry that this happens, and he ends up throwing, you know, Hanani, the, the deliverer of the men, like, don't shoot the messenger, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to throw you in prison, you know, because you told me what I didn't want to hear. And the tragic thing is, as far as we know, for the rest of Asa's life, he never again humbled himself before God, even after uh, this the situation. And he never really got to experience the grace of God in his life. And towards the end of his reign, he got a really bad foot disease. 
And one of the last things written about him is recorded in 2 Chronicles 16, 12 and 13. It says, though, uh, though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. Then in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died arrested with his ancestors. You know, King Asa started off his life really humbling himself before God and experienced the grace of God in his life. But then he didn't choose to manage his pride, and he ended up getting opposed by God and never choosing to humble himself as a result. I don't know about you, but I, when I read that, I think, that's, what a tragedy. What a tragedy of a life. And maybe even worse is, I imagine each one of us can think of someone we know that today that has kind of lived a similar kind of life. So what about Ahab? How did, how did his story turn out? It says, well, he continued to disobey God, and he continued to be opposed by God. And it finally culminated into this, this one event. There's one time that this man had, you know, this vineyard near King Ahab's palace, and Ahab really wanted that for his private vegetable garden so he wouldn't have to walk as far for produce. Um, but the guy said, well, no, I'm not going to give it to you. So he had him killed, you know. He went to his wife Jezebel and said, will you get that for me? And she said, I sure will. And so she went out and had this man killed. And, uh, and God finally said, you know, all right, I've had it. So he sent the prophet Elijah to Ahab one more time and basically said to him, because Ahab, you have done evil and have refused to humble yourself, I'm going to bring disaster on you and your whole household, and I'm going to wipe you out. So Asa, um, like Ahab, he was getting opposed by God in the latter years of his life because of his pride. But unlike Asa, he chose a different course of action. For the first time in his life, he finally chose to humble himself before God. And it says in 1 Kings 21, 28 and 29, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he, was humbled, because he has humbled himself, I will not bring disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the day of his son. So because Ahab finally chose to humble himself before God, God kindly and graciously postponed his judgment on Ahab's family line until after his death. You know, a very different ending for his life from where it was originally headed. You know, both Asa and Ahab, they started off their life very differently because of pride and humility. And they both ended their lives very differently because of pride and humility. So what do we take away from this? You know, how, how can we begin to apply the lessons from these kings' lives to our own? Well, I think a couple of things. First, I think we see from the lives of these two kings that whether you have a history of walking with God or not, Pride can be a snare to all of us. You know, you're never in the clear when it comes to pride. It has to be managed. But second, and maybe more encouraging, is I think we see that God's grace is available to anyone. No matter what you've done in your past, God's grace is available to you if you will simply humble yourself and ask for his help. But then that raises the question, how do we humble ourselves? You know, how do we grow in humility so that we can really manage pride and really uh, experience the grace of God in our lives, both individually and as a church body. Um, and I'll admit, you know, the idea, the topic of humility, kind of like, you know, subjects like love and all, it's just, it can be really vague, kind of ambiguous to wrap your mind around. And I think sometimes that's because, you know, we hear things in our society like, you know, if you're really humble, you wouldn't know it, you know, kind of thing. So this is kind of elusive thing, you know, and then there's there's people who, you know, write full books on humility with full, you know, covers of pictures of themselves in the book so you know who wrote the book on humility. And you kind of think, is this guy for real? Like, is that really what, what humility is about? Um, 
But ask yourself, you know, if growing in humility is really that vague, uh, then why does God command us to do it? And why does he promise blessings for those who do? You know, is he just, is he just toying with us? Um, I, I would submit to you that I think humility and how you can grow in it is really not as vague as, you know, sometimes people make it out to be. So in closing, I want to give you kind of a working definition of humility and then three steps that you can be, uh, begin to take to really begin to grow in it. And then afterwards, I'll be signing full headshots of myself um, to pass out to you guys. Um, so humility defined, I think, is basically this, you know, having an accurate view of yourself. Having an accurate view of yourself. You know, not thinking more lowly of yourself than you ought to and not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. Basically, another way of saying that is beginning to see yourself the way God actually sees you. It's not has nothing to do with personality. You know, you can be loud and outgoing and be very humble. You can also be very quiet and shy and very arrogant. It's all about the extent that you really see yourself accurately, which again is really how God sees you. And I think when we begin to see ourselves accurately, we will immediately begin to realize you cannot manage your life by yourself. <laughs> um, your life is just too complicated. And, and we really begin to need help on how to manage our lives. And when we realize that and we, re- we humbly ask for his help, God generously gives grace to everyone regardless of their past. So for some of you, you know, that may mean humbling yourselves for the very first time to receive God's grace for the forgiveness of your sins and really stepping into a relationship with him as your Savior and as your Lord. For others of you, maybe you've decided to already follow Jesus, but it may mean continuing to humble yourselves to receive grace to continue to walk with him. But every one of us along that spectrum need God's grace throughout the day. So how do we begin to grow in humility? Well, let me give you three steps to start off. A summary of it right here, and then we'll kind of take each one in stride. You know, never pretend... Never presume and never push. They all start with the P like pride. So I don't know what that means, but, you know, maybe I'll help you remember a little easier. But um, never pretend. You know, part of what this means, how you do this, is, is you have to begin to be honest about who you are and where you're at in different areas of your life. Um, now, as you get started on this, uh, you're, it's going to require some training. It's going to require, you know, beginning to train your body begin to train your mind, begin to train your mouth to not naturally um, pretend. Because, you know, I, I've, I've noticed this for myself. Your pride, will nat- a knee-jerk reaction is to pretend. And so, and you, your, your body and your mind, your mouth have gotten so accustomed to that that you don't even realize you're doing it. Um, so that may mean in different areas of life that we begin to make fewer statements and we begin to ask more questions. Because um, there's some things we talk about in life that we really just don't know what we're talking about. You know, I'm guilty of this, probably just like the rest of you guys. You know, I may be in a conversation for 10 minutes on a subject, and in the first minute, I tell people everything I know, and the next nine minutes, only things I suspect, but I pass it off as things that I actually know, you know? And so instead, I just need to say, I don't know, and I need to ask questions, and I need to learn, um, and I need to not worry about what other people think about me because that really doesn't matter. What really matters is what God thinks about me, and he already knows, you know, who I am and where I'm at, and so... Be growing, but be where you're at, you know, and move forward in that. Don't pretend. Another part of not pretending is learning to give credit where credit is due. You know, if you've learned something or you you have something that didn't originate with you, you know, which is probably most things, um, 
then man, learn to give credit where credit's due. And that will not only keep you humble, but that'll actually help foster a real thankful heart for you as well. For instance, these three Ps that I'm talking about right now, you know, that did not originate with me. You know, I'm just not that smart. Um, in fact, I'm not sure I've ever had an original thought in my life, uh, but um, come to think of it. But these actually originated with Dallas Willard. He was a Christian um, professor at USC who uh, taught philosophy and a bunch of other subjects. But um, I'm really glad that he, that God taught him these things as he walked with him and he passed them on so that I can learn them. Not pretending will really take a great burden off of you and me. Just think about all the time and energy we waste pretending every single day, you know. If, if you only implement this step, you'll gain back a lot of time and energy in your schedule of learning to not pretend. Second, never presume. Never presume that you should be treated in a certain way. Instead, have the mindset that you just talked about in Luke 17, 10, where he says, so you also... When you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. You know, never presuming will actually save you a lot of disappointment in life. For instance, if you're treated poorly, um, you're not bent out of shape because you didn't think you deserved to be treated in a certain way anyway. Or when you are treated well, you can enjoy it for what it is because you weren't feeling entitled um, to a certain kind of treatment in the first place. It's, it's, it's gravy to you. You're like, oh, great. You got treated well. You know, it's wise to know, obviously, the general cause and effects of how God has put things in the world. That, I'm not saying don't do that, but, but never presume upon people, you know, and especially never presume upon God, because although he does love us and has good things in store for us, he does not owe us anything. So don't presume. And then finally, never push. Never push. You know, part of what I think this means is really learning to abandon outcomes to God learning to abandon outcomes to God. For me, there have been big, three probably big arenas I think I've had to learn to do this in and, and I'm continuing to learn to do this in. One is really learning to abandon the outcomes of situations and circumstances I find myself in, wanting to control, whether for good or bad reasons. You know, I find myself in situations, circumstances, and I just, you know, I want to, to make sure they happen in a certain way. Um, and then the second, I think, is learning to abandon the outcomes of people's lives that I so desperately want to see turn out in a certain way. You know, maybe you guys experience, you know, with my, whether it's with Katie, you know, my wife or my kids or students at USC or other neighbors or family and friends, you know, I have a plan for their life and I want to make sure it goes a certain way because I think that would be good for them and probably good for me, you know. And then in the third, I think, arena is learning to abandon outcomes to God of really just my own desires and dreams, you know, Letting him be the one that makes the final call on that. Now, this doesn't mean that we're to be passive and not do anything. I don't want you to think that. You know, we should work hard. We should stand for what's right. We should stand up for what God has called us to stand up for. And we should really be a help to other people. But we let God do the pushing. So what this means in part is I think we stay within the roles that he's laid out for us in Scripture. And we don't take on his roles and we don't take on the roles that he's assigned to other people. We stay in our lane. And I don't know about for you, but for me, there have been times where I see something I think that needs to be done, and I think God would want it done, and I'm going to make sure it happens whether I get the green light or not, and God's going to fake me for it later. And so will you guys, you know? It's, 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 I don't know if you guys experience those situations where you're kind of like, no, I'm just going to do it. It's good. This will happen. But really what that is, is that's just pride. 
and a lack of trusting God on my part. I do need to act, but I don't need to push. And I need to learn to trust God and abandon the outcome to him. Now, if you're like me, when you begin to work on this step, you're going to be a little surprised if you haven't tried this before, of how much you actually do push and how much you don't abandon outcomes in God. I didn't realize how much I did that. It's like even after you've acted, you, you tend to, you know, hold on to stuff. It's kind of like the idea of like if you've ever been bowling and, you know, and you've probably seen people do this too. It's, it's almost comical if it wasn't so sad. Um, but, um, you know, you're, you're bowling and, you know, of course, yeah, you need to act. You need to properly, you know, bowl and do the, the right drop and spin and everything like that. But once you bowl, you know, rather than just kind of walk back, people stand there and they kind of, they clinch up and they kind of do the, Ooh, ah, you know, and they're watching the ball and the ball is totally, it's not in their hands anymore. The ball is rolling down, you know, tumbling towards the pins or for me, probably the gutter. And, uh, and it's tumbling down the lane and you have literally no control over it at this point. But yet you think if you stare at it just right, if you, if you bite your, you know, bite your hand a little bit, you sort of kind of, ah, like somehow you have a little bit more control over it, just like that paper. Um, and the reality is the ball has left your hand. You have no control over it anymore at this point. You know, it's gone. And yet we're still hoping maybe I can exert just a little bit more control over that before it ends up where it's supposed to end up. I think we do that in life a lot too with God. I think we sometimes physically and emotionally tie ourselves in knots in situations because we pridefully think that we can control the outcomes of situations and people beyond just acting how God would lead us to act. But the reality is we can't. And so instead, we need to humble ourselves and really abandon the outcome to God after we've acted and just relax. You know, you'll live longer. I'll live longer if we just act, but let God do the pushing. So never pretend, never presume, and never push. If you'll practice these steps, you know, as you go throughout your days and go throughout your life, I think not only will you grow in humility, but you'll really find yourself enjoying life more. People will find themselves enjoying you more. And, uh, and you'll experience more of the grace of God in your life rather than his opposition. So if we will individually and collectively do this, as Peter says, we can trust that God will lift us up in the proper time and honor us as he sees fit. So let me pray for us and then invite the band to come back up. And we'll worship a little bit more. So. Father, thank you that um, you model for us and how to be humble yourself through Jesus. Um, but God, thank you so much too that you, you do give grace uh, to people who humble themselves. Um, and God, even, even in the idea of you opposing the proud, I pray that we would see that accurately that um, you never act not out of love, Father. And so even when you oppose us, that's because that's probably the best thing to do in this situation for our benefit. We'd destroy ourselves if we didn't get opposed by you. So God, help us to trust you. Help us to humble ourselves before you. Um, and God, as a result, would you really bless us individually and would you really bless us as a church as we choose to walk with you in that. Thank you so much um, for the recorded uh, lives, both good and bad examples that we see throughout scriptures that we can learn from. And I pray that we would learn from those and put those into practice. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.